1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Baby, baby, brown baby, I am brown baby, I am brown baby, I am brown baby, I am brown baby, 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 I am baby, I am, I am. Welcome to the Brown Baby podcast. I am your host, Nick S. Shukla. Brown Baby is a weekly podcast about parenting. Each week I ask my guests how we raise our kids to be joyful in a world that is so bleak and racist and sexist and horrific when I feel so sad and angry about it. How do I do that? Please, someone tell me. I speak to writers, actors, musicians, people with interesting parenting stories to tell. I hope it's a funny and honest look at parenting featuring conversations between parents of colour that you haven't really heard before. Previous guests have included Jay Sean, Mira Sayal, Kelechi Okafor, Kit Duval, Nadia Hussain and more. This week though, I am talking to the incredible actor Patterson Joseph. Okay, so look, let's just get this out of the way. I love the character he played in Peep Show, Johnson. Just one of the best, most quotable antagonists in a sitcom that I've ever seen. I also loved him in The Leftovers. But the thing about Patterson is he's been in... Everything from BBC One's Noughts and Crosses to Green Wing to more. His IMDb is so long and impressive. He is also a theatre maker and a writer. He worked on a brilliant production about Ignatius Sancho and his life, which he is now developing into a book with Dialogue Books, which we talk a little bit about. Patterson is a legend. I loved talking to him about fatherhood, having mixed race kids, his fascination with Ignatius Sancho, and also what happens when you move back to where you grew up before we launch into the podcast there's just a couple of things to note one this is a really sweary podcast right at the start and right at the end i know every time i am in the presence of the c word whether i say it or someone says it around me someone emails me and reminds me i have daughters and i'm sorry that i'm puerile and i love swearing but there's a lot of swearing in this so you have been warned okay two People have very kindly commented on the noise levels of previous podcasts. I'm trying to fix this, but bear in mind, I'm doing all of this on my own for free with no support. I am learning to be a sound engineer pretty much. So please stick with me and bear with me. I'm getting better all the time. I'm learning more things all the time. Using the ACAST supporter feature to chuck some quids my way means I can pay a proper producer in season two. And let me just say, the lineup for season two is even more ridiculous than season one. I promise you. So yeah, I know that the noise on this episode is a little bit shoddy. We had to use a Zoom recording for various reasons rather than the clean audio feeds of both of us speaking. I've tried to clean it up as best as I can. But the conversation is so rich that hopefully you won't notice. Thank you for the feedback, though. I am hearing you. Also, I'm hearing from people who are saying that these conversations are really rich and vital and important and comforting for them and also just venture into spaces they've not really heard before. So thank you so much for listening and for sharing that with me. I know not everything is for everyone and there are so many podcasts out there. But the fact that we are doing something that is unique really just fills me with joy. Because ultimately this project, the Brown Baby book, the Brown Baby podcast and the other things that we're doing that are Brown Baby related. They're just things that I wished had been around when I was when I knew that we were going to have kids. And also when we had kids and also to this day, I'm just I'm glad to be making work that I need. And that means that other people need it too. So thank you so much. um This podcast is inspired by my memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family, and home. I know I say this every week, but please buy that book. Please buy it. You know, it's a global pandemic. It's uh, it's hard to get the word out there about books outside of your circle of social media following. So I'm hoping that people who are listening to this podcast, you can just pick it up buy a second copy recommend it to people um you know i have a bookshop.org affiliate link in the show notes please go and buy the book from there or you know from bookshop.org from wherever you get your books anywhere works just buy it and if you can't afford to buy the book or support through the supporter feature then you know getting it from a library also helps reviews of the podcast uh the starring the podcast social media love is always welcome thank you so much you are such a kind and receptive audience and i really cherish you thank you right now to the podcast with patterson joseph swear words immediately Um, is
0: there a language uh, barrier is there a um audience that i should be thinking of who who are your people
2: um i'm imagining that there are a lot of tired parents whose entire <laughs> whose entire brains are filled with f's and jeff's right now so I swear <laughs> as much as you want okay i'm not saying
0: i'm going to i'm just saying just <laughs> <laughs> i won't stop myself <laughs> <The problem> is, <laughs> um,
2: I, I, I swear so casually that um I, I i about four or five years ago i was doing an interview on uh on bbc asia network with someone i knew very well and had known for a long time and they were interviewing about my book and um he asked me a question about grief because that that was something that was a big component about the book and I forgot that I was on radio and I just thought I was talking to one of my friends I went oh fucking hell I don't know man (laughs) (laughs) just so casually yes (laughs) and then uh, immediately remembered that I was on the radio
0: (laughs) and my swear my swear warning story um I was about 11 and we were in um, technical drawing class and it was an all-boys school and for some reason in Wilson Green in the mid seventies, we all decided to become Cockneys. I mean, none of us were really. Um, you know, we were Italians and Spanish and Irish and you know, Caribbean from various places. But we all decided to do, sort of, you know, start saying, Oh, she's in a right to an a- eight. She I don't know, it was probably watching um the Sweeney or something. <laughs> and so uh, I remember every after the, every sentence for this one period, we'd say you can uh, go down the shops you can yeah 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 i'm gonna buy some crisps you can did you get some sort of vinegar you can yeah right you can It's <laughs> just like casually and then mr mr winter winterburn um technical drawing teacher one morning asked me joseph it's quite an aggressive school. joseph have you done your homework no sir you can't um <laughs> what'd you call me sorry no, i did
2: whack <laughs> <laughs> um I'm going to have to keep that story in, I'm afraid. So now <laughs> I'm going to say, Welcome to the podcast. Pastor oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I never use that word in anger.
0: I use it all the time when I'm driving, but that's not the same thing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, contextually, this is when you were in your teens. And so, you know, you were learning about the world.
0: I think the statute of limitations has passed on that crime.
2: Yeah. But you grew up in Wilson Green. I grew up in Harrow. So uh, oh, we're, we're both Northwest. North,
0: North Weasy, as they say.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, when yes. um so when Zadie Smith's N.W. came out, oh yes, I was really like, wow, Northwest London has finally entered the literary yes. canon. And then years later, mm-hmm. I wrote a piece in the Guardian about growing up in Harrow, and um I, and I was at this party with this very cool and this very cool musician, and I were, who I really loved his music, and uh, we were both at the buffet table, and he just turned to me and he said you're that who wrote about harrow in the guardian and i was like oh. yeah yeah that was me and he said yeah i was reading it and going why would anyone want to write about harrow in the guardian <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, and i thought yeah i was adding to the zadie smith canon of northwest northwest it's funny London.
0: you know because it is a thing about running away because i had this uh sense when i was growing up that uh, wilson was a horrible place to be that we'd been Slightly dumped there in the arsehole of the world. Uh, I mean, subsequently, obviously, as an older teenager, when I traveled outside of Brent, <laughs> I realized that there were places that were uh, much more dangerous to have grown up in, you know, than we had done. And um, and I feel kind of lucky now because it's very green. I'm back really in Northwest, I'm in Cricklewood. So, yeah, but the childhood idea of getting out of the dump that you live in is very common. That Here I am coming back like. This. <laughs> a thief to the scene of the crime it's
2: one of it's one of those things that my my sister and cousins just don't understand that I was so quick to leave and I you know obviously I, I live in Bristol now I, I went west of northwest right, right and um they all live within a two mile radius of where we grew up um and they, yes. you know, they're perfectly content with with it it's just yeah. it's home for them whereas I was so desperate to leave I've noticed that in a lot of families that there is one who has wanderlust,
0: and there are two, and there are others who are very content to stay at home. And I've never quite figured that out. Whether that's the simple math of oh, one is more adventurous and the other one is more cautious, I don't know that it's that simple. But I certainly know that I lived in Ireland for a year, where none of my relatives uh, understood why I had gone there and how could I possibly live there, and isn't the IRA? active I said it's Dublin and they went yeah but that's Ireland isn't it (laughs) so they didn't really know I mean it's not like they just hadn't traveled sort of Caribbean England Caribbean England but not very many other places and for me to go and live in Ireland shredded for a year and got married out there and then uh, a few years later go live in France uh, for about eight years they just could not fathom it yet for me it was a no-brainer and now I'm glad to be back but also very glad that I had the journey
2: this is making me think that in my in my 60s I'm gonna I'm not I'm obviously not saying you're in your 60s but when, when I get my I mean, I'm not that far off <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna end up uh on uh on those housing websites looking at you know see if I could buy my childhood home as a way of you know I've, I've done I've done my I've done my traveling now I'm ready to return to the the nest
0: there, there, well, there was a strange sort of conjunction because it happened to be November 2016 and I I was uh, here where I'm sitting now, looking out into the darkness of the garden, thinking, why have I come back here? <laughs> I mean, it's partly because it was the only place I could afford after I um, split up from my uh, ex-wife and I came back to England. But it was also, I thought, my mum's just down the road, I'm going to end up her primary carer. Oh, my God. I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to be burdened with it all. And then, uh, you know, I kind of calmed down and suddenly there were fireworks right in front of me, over the gardens. And I was like, that's a nice welcome. Ah, and it was Diwali, of course. And so I noticed that last week when it was happening. I was thinking, oh, that reminds me when I first moved in. So I feel at home again.
2: Um, So so you're you're a father. Um, Yes. I'm 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 phrasing this in that sort of very Radio 4 way of um, asking questions where you you tell the person a fact about themselves that they already know.
0: And then they just riff
2: on it. And then they just riff on it. Yes, I do. Um, uh, how, how many kids do you have I have one boy and is
0: he 17 that's you you not. I'm not gonna make you drag it out of me word by word um, <laughs> he's uh, 17
2: so you have a 17 year old <laughs>
0: yes yeah. he's uh he's growing up in France where we took him when he was about four and a half he's had all his schooling there so I decided not to you know, sort of pull him back and forth and he's doing very well He's a little old, uh, young to be where he is at the moment. He's a year ahead of himself, but he's uh, doing a sort of foundation course before his physics degree. Yeah, in the in the middle of France, a place called Tour, Tours, T O U R S. A lot of people say yes, I've been through Tours. It's not a bad thing to do. The countryside's lovely. The town itself is a little um, provincial, and the mindset is a little conservative and provincial.
2: I really remember. Um... Uh, a relative of mine when when their kid became a teenager and started um doing all the types of things that teenagers do like um smoking and trying to try to try to hang out with girls and staying out late and not moving unless uh forced and all the rest of it and just
0: uh, teenagers i think i'm still a little <laughs> bit like that but yeah. maybe the chasing girls thing
2: and um and I had to remind him that this is exactly what he was like when he was a teenager. Yes. And, and, and he kind of had this moment where he was like, Oh my God, I had, I had myself, I have myself as a teenager. Yes. And and he realized that he had become his dad as, as a parent, which I, th- which I found really interesting.
0: Yes. Right. And then it also, I suppose, depends on what relationship you had with your dad, because if you've had a very pleasant one and it was lovely, that's quite a warm thing. But if it was contentious, uh, and then you're looking at your son thinking am I as bad as he was <laughs> um how did he deal with it or did he feel like was that a sweet thing for him to sweet poignancy for him
2: I think it relaxed him because he knew that he turned out okay in the end and yeah. he kind he it was it was part of this wanderlust thing that we would that we were talking about that that at some points you just need to push it push your boundaries know the boundaries are there and then just get on with your life and that's kind yeah. of what he did he was he was uh Reckless teenager doing all, up to all sorts of mischief, and then you know, as soon as he left university, he was like, Right, I need to sort my life out, and he did. Yes,
0: well, it's, it's interesting, it's, it reminds me. Uh, we did a lot of reading, uh, Mike's wife and I, before we had my son because it took a while. Um, and we knew he was going to be growing up in a bilingual household, um, and we didn't want to mess him up because that can be quite traumatizing. Um, so uh, I remember reading about this uh, sort of child development thing where a toddler because you, you see them in the park all the time run away from their parents as if they're terrified of their parents of course they're not they're just literally um expressing their their right to freedom as it were and then always pulling themselves back well there's a sort of invisible umbilical cord between them and and their mm. carer so that they'll run as if they're going to go anywhere wild like a puppy but actually they've got to know that you're there and i think that uh, that's the same uh, with teenagers, I think it's also the same with adults in a certain way uh, in terms of home, <laughs> like what our idea of home is I don't necessarily mean a geographical place, but what our idea of a setup of home is that actually we can pull away from it quite far, experiment, go to the boundaries of our own sort of morality even, and then we will t- I think we'll tend to go back. I think I've noticed that and revert to to childhood um safety in some It's like my dad becoming more religious now than he ever was. You know, when I was religious for a period, late 20s to mid 40s, the beginning of that was um, traumatizing for him because he thought I'd become some sort of, involved in some sort of cult. He didn't really like the Bible. He felt it was written by white men. And why are you believing any of it? And here he is now, 86, and much more religious than I, I was really, and certainly
2: was through most of that.
0: Periods. so it's interesting that he's reverted to something mm. that he pulled away so seemingly strongly from
2: yeah the, these patterns that 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 are established long before we're born I, fi- I find them quite interesting you know in in the way that you know I, I look at I look back at how I used to view my dad and I see myself now as my dad you know we, we both have wildly different careers but we still have that obsessive nature
0: yeah, and I, I think that when we look at our children and see ourselves, it's a it's quite a beautiful thing, especially if it's a positive, um, you know, my son's cheekiness is my cheekiness towards my mother because of my grasp of French is probably less was for most of his life firm um, than my mother's grasp of English. And I'd always mock her, but, but um, there's a thing about perspective, isn't there? The cliche of you see your children, you see yourself somehow in them and then worry about, um, whether you're going to draw them towards your own you know, mistakes. And we end up making mistakes by trying to get, get them, you know, on a certain track. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed raising Clem as much as I've been able to with going away now and living in France since he was about 12. Uh, more than anything else, and seeing his development is the most satisfying thing to see a, a sort of good man in the world. I feel like I had a bit of a hand in it.
2: And and how how do you how do you stop yourself from kind of projecting your version of the world onto him? Because obviously, you know, I, you know, we, we came together having followed each other online and, you know, yeah. you're somebody who's very, very, very happy to, to, to say, say what you believe and own it and and defend it and, and occupy from fixed positions. And, and, you know, while I'm the same way, what I've noticed is that it has kind of jaded made me, it's made me more cynical as I've, as I've got older, certainly in the last four years. And, my worry has always been when i talk to my daughters about the way the world is that i will just project that cynicism onto them and and I, I think that that you know i want them to be realistic but i don't i don't want them to have my cynicism
0: yeah and that's really good and kindly of you because a lot of people do impose their cynical view of the world um and not just about politics um about honesty and about uh, hard work and you know etc and about racism but uh, i think that the one of the things that we are charged to do, I think, when raising the children is to show them the truth of the world as much mm. as you possibly can without traumatizing them before they're ready to accept actual truths. Um, and with Clem, because he's a mixed heritage child, his mother's white uh, and I'm black and British, and his mother's white and French, he had a lot to negotiate. And so I, I was very sure that where we were growing bringing him up in uh, in provincial france he was not going to have my sensibilities he couldn't possibly do because of his eth- ethnicity because of where he's growing up culturally it's not the same so mm-hmm. i wanted to see how he saw the world and then help him when the questions came which they did probably at around the age of seven or eight when he began to notice how few people there were like him not in a negative way just i could hear in his in his conversation and so I began to watch him and see what he was making of the world. And his far, his um, granddad said something that I mean, because the French are quite can be quite casually racist. And I don't mean that they're saying something racist, but just in their phrasing. For example, uh, the game of telephone, which is the game where you say one thing to a person, they whisper it to the person next to them. And by the time you get to the end, it's a confused mess. We call Chinese whispers, but I won't use that phrase because I'm aware of what that means. Mm. It's gobbledygook, therefore it's Chinese. So I don't, I don't use that. The French uses a, a phrase called the um, telephone arabe, the telephone arabe, so the Arabic telephone. So he used that phrase, and Clem brought him up on it. I think because I've I'd men- I'd mentioned it to at, at the table at some point that that's odd that you guys use Arab and we use the Chinese. And he said, um, and Pappy was really, I didn't like what Pappy was saying about um, immigrants and about Arab people. And it was his first time that he'd kind of clocked that, that there was an, an attitude to an entire group. Mm. And that actually somehow he was, he was part of that story. Uh, and yeah, and more and more lately, he's very politically aware. He's very um, even handed, but he's very clear that he's a, a brown man in a, in a white world. Um, mm. And I haven't had to do any of that, really. He, We've had conversations, but I haven't had to wake him up, if you like, to it. He's, he's seen it himself, and I'm glad of that. He didn't grow up with it, but he's certainly found it now.
2: Yeah, I, I really remember when I moved to when I moved to Bristol, <clears throat> um, moving away from London. Yeah, you know, the thing the thing that I always find about Bristol is that it's it kind of sells itself as this very multicultural city, but it's not very intercultural. Yes. And um and so I kind of went from, you know, being in a very, very diverse community, uh, you know, of friends and family and all the rest of it, to um just being in, in a very white part of Bristol, you know, with very white in-laws and, and and all the rest of it. Where about Clifton hill No, no, no. Um, I currently live not far from Gloucester Road. Um <laughs> and um I was walking through town one day with, uh, with an artist friend of mine, a, a white guy. And we were walking past this, 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 this old Asian man, he was just sort of standing, reading his, reading his paper as, as old Asian men tend to do in the, in the center of cities. And he lowered the paper and he nodded at me and I nodded back at him. And this guy said, Oh, do you know him? And I said, Oh no, 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 that's just the, the solidarity nod. And he, <laughs> he was like, what's the solidarity nod. And I had to explain to him that, you know, like these majority white spaces, you kind of, you, you, it's almost like you're kind of going. I see you. If you get in trouble, I'm around. Yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I just call also, it the nod. Yeah, the nod. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> be, being in in rural France, does 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 your kid have the opportunity to? Does he does he ever does he feel that kind of solidarity with people in his community?
0: Well, for Clem, I think because that is a strangely um, uh, mixed part of the smaller town of Jouet, Littor, which is where he lives. It's quite a mixed group. There's quite a lot of people from uh, North Africa and uh, from Francophone Africa. Uh, so there's a few kids scattered around. Now he's gone to university that and people are coming from all over the country. That's grown a bit more. So he's never felt, I don't think, as a like a truly black child in, in a very white environment or a black child with loads of black people. He's got this kind of hybrid thing and then he comes and he's got a tiny, tiny extended family uh his mum has only had one brother they've got two children one of the children he never sees the other one um you know he sees intermittently so he's got very small group of blood relatives then he comes here and it's like the tribe of joseph (laughs) my four sisters and and my brother and my you know how many nephews and nieces um so he gets surrounded by that so his his cultural identity is as it were is very fluid and and not one that i can stand in and and understand even until he begins to tell me i suppose what that is um and what did i want to say about that i think his his whole um his whole whole idea of self is is unique and i and i'm sort of sensitive to that um and I, and I and I wonder too, you know, if if he doesn't suffer for what happens in France. So in, in every other country I've ever been in, it just happened to me in Mexico, for the, so that was two countries I've ever been, whenever you do see a black person, especially if it's in, a, in an environment where there are hardly any of you, there is the nod, but in France, that's very rare. And I talked to a French actor, a friend of mine, he was originally from Francophone Africa, I can't remember which country, uh, I want to say Togo. Uh, but he basically said, oh, the, one of the reasons that doesn't happen is because they're always calculating whether you're from uh, an African uh, French background or an African Caribbean French background. And I thought, my God, how you make that kind of distinction. No wonder there's no, it doesn't seem to me, coherent black movement in that country, because that's such a disparate group of people. And you've got Arabs who look, you know, Africans who look as, as light shade as you are. And there's, you know, blue-black from, you know, the Congo. And so it's it's impossible for them to know who's who. So they have this, and I noticed it when I was there. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe I was just being gauche, you know. I sort of smiling at people, we don't really do that. And the people were being generally French. But no, it's, there's a real care about uh, your tribe there.
1: and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365 day returns
2: i do, I do want to get on to talking about your work around Ignatius because I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really amazing and really, really fascinating um but i, I a thing that you said earlier that I just wanted to kind of come back to because it's also a very real concern of mine and also I think ultimately a failure that I think I've had I really wanted to raise my children to be bilingual I wanted them to speak Gujarati which is you know my the mother tongue of my parents um oh, and and you know and a bit of Swahili because you know my dad grew up in Kenya uh as well as well as English um but the reality was when I was growing up, we spoke Gujarati exclusively at home until we were teenagers. And then my sister and I started replying in English to the point where my parents just started asking in English. Yes. To the point where Gujarati then got relegated to when I had very surface conversations with my grandparents. And so to to raise my children as bilingual, mm. I would have to obviously, you know, constantly speak to them in Gujarati. Um but I, I, I sort of, you know, living in Bristol, not really speaking it apart from the like, you know, once a month I, I speak to my, my grandmother on the phone. Um, I have no opportunity to use it and therefore it, it's just fallen out of out of my head. And I wonder yeah. if you could just talk a bit about the experience of, of raising your kid to be bilingual. bilingual
0: kids, yeah. So um, what we discovered um, with the various books we read is that what your experience is is very common. What happens is uh, kids... Want to be part of the whole group? They don't want to be outsiders. If your language is a an attractive language, it probably doesn't matter what it is, but if it's an attractive language to the majority culture, like French, Spanish, Italian, what they would call the Romance language, because we are fetishistically obsessed with that <laughs> idea, then <laughs> that's that can be all good. Actually, you can still get a bit embarrassed and not want your mum or dad to speak French in front of other people who don't understand it, but because there's going to be a warm feeling towards it as a language, oh, you speak French, you, you will get a more positive feel to it. If it's a language like Creole, for example, my parents spoke Creole in the house till I was three, that is not respected outside of the house, then it becomes a shame language and you have to hide it. And the book was talking about these languages and saying that it's imperative that the kid is given a very dichotomous idea of language so mm-hmm. the language of home is strictly whatever it is you want to teach them strictly no one no one skips in and out nobody translates everybody speaks that language whether it's arabic whether it's swahili whether it's gujarati and then when they come out of the house no one speaks gujarati or swahili unless they're talking amongst themselves They all speak English so that there's a code and the code in the child's brain um, works really well because they know from the womb, whether their mother's speaking their mother tongue or not studies have shown. So they're very comfortable as long as they know what the parameters are. And and as soon as you start doing the back and forth, a little bit of this and and then back to English. That's when they start getting confused and and will head towards the majority language. Um, And a lot of kids when we were growing up, uh, when Clem was growing up in Twickenham, and we joined, we made this sort of tr- bilingual little enclave of French because there's a lot of French down there uh, mothers and their kids and started teaching them you could see the kids who were already at four or five determined not to speak French and they were half French and they were with their mother all the time but the mother would speak to them in French and they would reply which they understood perfectly and they would reply in English even at four or five and by the time they were seven a lot of them had completely given up on French so it was really important that we did one parent my language manu my ex-wife spoke only French to him even though she was fluent in english uh, all the time we lived in front in england that's what she did and i only spoke to him in english uh, and when he was about three and a half we then started to try to because ha- he was quite bright when we would try to explain to him when we were with his grandparents in France that i was going to attempt to speak in uh, French which was just disastrous oh my god he hated it <laughs> oh god he hated it he was so embarrassed he was so weird with me Um uh, but yeah again the book said if you're if you don't catch up with your child's language they will tend to be a bit <laughs> of you. so i had that which is quite traumatizing really when you think about it
2: um, god that's so, are so interesting yeah. um but and it, it i think it also speaks to the to um i guess what what we refer to as code switching, where. I, I guess it's much more pronounced for for people of color in majority white white countries where you know we will have we will talk in in different almost in different language or different dialects depending on the environment. I, you know, yeah. it's done so brilliantly um, in that second episode of Small Acts where yeah,
0: that's right, yeah, where he goes you see to the garage, yeah,
2: where he goes to the garage and the, and he suddenly starts talking a very Cockney accent, yeah, uh, as yeah. as his way of disguising his um, his his. Uh, his sort of otherness, bit, yeah.
0: yeah his, his otherness. He wanted to, yeah, blend in,
2: yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, and it's it's really yeah, and it's really beautiful. And you know, it's it's certainly something that you kind of see in the arts where people soften their regional accents because you know, received pronunciation is, you know, the the most acceptable way of talking. I remember someone telling me a story that um, they they had shared a cab home from a publishing party with with someone who just moved to to London, yeah. and the further they got from this publishing party and closer to their home this person's Halifax accent started to <laughs> cut, to come out more because they just were starting to relax and, and it just made you realize that you know I think it just took me the longest time to to understand that while I would code switch that didn't mean that I was being different people in different environments I was being myself but I just knew the right code to use in yes. the different context
0: yeah yeah I think we complicated I think we're all multilingual because, you know, the way you speak to your mother, you, you don't speak to your butcher in the same way or, you know, the doctor. We all have a, a way of... Um, that's what language is. It's a way of communicating with whoever's in front of us. It's why, you know, posh people will have a builder over and go, yeah, the two B4s and the four B8s, and then be on the phone. Yes, this is John here. I'm, um, I'm ready for my six o'clock meeting. You know, it's not... They're not insulting the builder. They just don't want to... They want to show a sort of empathetic coming towards, you know, while they're going, yes, you mean two inches by four inches, John. You know, they don't want to be, they don't want to be seen as being patronising in the case of, of, of people who speak RP. And also people who speak in this sort of, they know it's a, it's a working class, grammatically, you know, interesting way. They're going to modify that sometimes a bit too much and are overcorrect when they're trying to speak to somebody official. It's not that they're patronising that person. They're trying to speak as clearly as possible because they're not going to go, oh, hey, mate, I want to get my lighting sorted out because they, they go, I-, I would like to speak to somebody about my lighting, please. You know, they get very correct. So everybody has a way of code switching. My only worry has ever been, for black kids, brown kids in particular, is when they got this neutral accent, which I pretty much did, actually, got a neutral accent, and then... They sort of develop whatever it is that's fashionable at school the way to speak can they then switch when they're having an interview because i i i feel like it, it should be part of your arsenal as a as a person in this country in particular to be able to speak several languages as it were uh, and it, you know if a kid who talks like that you know when he's with his boys and you know they're talking about this and that and and, and it's all about mumbling, it's all about not saying too much, it's all about not opening your mouth too much and all the rest of it. And then you sit in a, in an, and definitely not looking at each other. And then you sit in an interview and somebody, usually somebody white, is stare, literally staring at you because they're giving you eye contact and saying, so why do you want to join the firm? It, it's gonna feel like an interrogation. So I always wonder about those kids, whether they can code switch even the way that they behave with each other in interviews
2: one thing one thing i've noticed anecdotally um from my years as a youth worker is because so much communication is done on text and actually not you know one of the young people that i um i used to mentor told me that she would ha- she would start panicking if her phone started ringing and she didn't know that a phone call was coming through yeah and the way to talk to her on the phone would be to text her and say can I call you in 5 minutes to get, kind of give her time and and it made me realize that actually she, she she and a bunch of the young people I worked with they were they were very adept at code switching on uh, on text-based communication so on email um know communicating with me as opposed to communicating with their friends but but that filter wasn't necessarily there when it came to interpersonal behavior which i found fascinating to watch
0: that's interesting that's on another level i didn't realize that was happening too and then i wonder how they are then with oral um communication because if you can't uh talk on a phone which is quite difficult actually that's one thing it's quite difficult because you're not seeing people's faces you're not getting you know the nuance of smiles and whatever I get that it can be difficult but it's our basic way of communicating writing came later I mean our basic way of communicating is opening our mouths and resonating words into each other's ears you know that's how we did it so if you don't have the words you know you're limited to a certain amount of text so are our sentences going to become increasingly shorter? I was laughing with my my um my partner the other day at um, the way everything on Netflix when it comes up if you leave the screen strolling is is in threes, offbeat, witty, comedy, sentimental, deep, biography. You know, it's <laughs> like I was thinking if I could describe everything in life in those sort of three terms, and maybe that's what's happening. We're going to reduce everything. Did you go to? How was your day today? Exciting. Difficult, fun. That's <laughs> <laughs> the end, you know. What would you like for dinner? Food, tasty. Now,
2: <laughs> isn't that the D- Dominic Cummings uh, school of sloganeering To have it, you know, pe- people understand three-word slogans. I think that was it. that was his thing.
0: Did he actually literally say that? He was probably watching Netflix, half, <laughs> half catatonic on his sofa after that trip to Barnard Castle when he's in it. <laughs> um. He-
2: so I'd I'd love to talk to you about. Um, ignatius sancho mm. um given that you are currently working on a book uh about yes. him and yes. uh, there was a play mm. and very much your handle uh on various social media platforms do, do you remember the first time you you came across him yes uh it was
0: uh around about 1999 2000 1990, uh, i got a book called black england by a lady called gretchen holbrook uh gazina An African-American historian and writer and it uh, was the first proper delve into the sort of comprehensive black British histories from Septimius Severus uh, in the second century AD and all the way through to John Blank and the trumpeter at Henry VIII's court uh, to Ignatius Sancho Uh, and so Ignatius Sancho uh, I found really moving first of all the image of him which was a black and white image in this book which now stands above my head if I can do that without causing too much noise Oh wow! Uh, in, in my dining room so there's a um, there's a man who I couldn't quite believe was being depicted like this in 1768 by Gainsborough who's the greatest portraitist of his day arguably and so I just started to investigate him and it turned out that he was born on a slave ship in 1729 and the fragmentary information that we have about him is that he then was at three years old sent from Colombia which is uh, was a slave was a slave country too, to live in um, Greenwich with three spinsters who are unidentified to this day uh, and he had a life like a lot of those black kids who were there for uh, the showing of wealth if I've got this little negro boy holding a tray it would show that I had money is the way that a lot of the upper echelons thought of black kids um and there were sailors a lot of sailors in London and a lot of servants and a lot of people who were slaves who came from the Caribbean with their masters some ran away there were a lot of runaways so he comes to this strange to the enclave just outside of London and they treat him probably like a pet and um, dress him up call him Sancho because they think Charles Ignatius, which is what he was baptized as, looks a bit like uh, Don Quixote's uh, page, Sancho Panza. And so uh, he runs away from home when he's about seven, we think, because they won't teach him how to read because they don't want to spoil him. He's found by the Duke of Montague, who's uh, a member of the King's household. And uh, the Duke secretly lends him books and educates him. By the time he grows, he's a, a musician. He becomes a, a valet to the Duke and Duchess, a butler to that household. He uh, tries his hand at acting. One of his best friends is David Garrick. Um, and he's also a bon vivant. He loves to eat and drink, becomes incredibly fat and gouty. Um, and uh, with his, uh, we think Caribbean wife, but actually she may well have been born in London, but he certainly his black wife and his six or seven children. He opens a grocery store after he can't work for the Duke anymore. And because he's got, a property he can vote so he votes in 1774 and in 1780 so this incredible 51 year old life is so action-packed that um, I just thought I got to write his story uh, and I started with a play which I completed possibly in about 2007 first performed it in about 2010 at the National Theatre Studio it's called Sancho an act of remembrance it takes place in the studio when he's his portrait is being painted and he talks to the audience there about his life and then in the shop just before he makes his final final vote talk to the audience there so a very public um, presentation of him he also wrote reams of music so there's music in the play um, and everything about Sancho is public reams of letters to the newspapers are public so here we are now in 2015 uh, and I'm thinking was uh, 16 i'm thinking uh, the next thing i want to do is either a, a film or a television thing or, or a novel and the novel idea kept on pulling at me and i thought i i don't know if i've got it in me to write that many words and it takes me six years to write you know any book it took me it took me six seven years to write the first proper draft of sancho it took me god knows how long it took me six years to write a book on Shakespeare um, that I wrote it was just, you know, 160 pages long. I thought, I can't write a novel on this man's life unless I dedicate my life to it. And then lockdown happened at yeah, the beginning of 2020. And I I got into a room and I looked at the treatment that I had written uh, about a year before for a, a TV company. And it was so long, it was 17 pages long, that said, oh, can you just boil it down? But I looked at it and I thought, my God, I, should, I might as well have written that novel. But then I sort of <laughs> t- I took it and I t- and I took I took the I did the the knowledge I suppose that I had all this information, and I just hit the ground and I um I wrote a novel, uh, and it's called The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, so now we can get the behind the scenes. What did he really think of the world he was in, and it's going to be published in October 2022 by uh, the lovely Charmaine Lovegrove, at uh, Dialogue Books
2: yeah it's it's so exciting and 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 it really speaks to um what has what is current you know what is happening in the uk at the moment which you know which has been happening for decades you know let's be honest oh, but yeah. you know with with each passing year that we don't have um enough of an honest depiction of our histories or you know or a celebration of the, the people people like Ignatius Sancho. From our histories, you know, like we, we stand on the shoulders of the, the people who've tried to f- have this conversation in the years before us. But it yeah. really feels now, especially with things like the black curriculum and, you know, with with the, with the, you know, if I'm being blunt, conservative MPs being so shit scared about these conversations that they're cussing people like Renietto Lodge and Kehinde Andrews in Parliament, you know, um, because and sort of making claims about their books that show they haven't actually read them. But it, it really feels like... You know, I, I don't want to sort of, I don't want to preempt nothing changing, but I, I do feel like we've moved a little bit further along the conversation.
0: Yeah, we have and we haven't. I mean, I, I'm like you. I mean, I'm I'm a cynic. I mean, I was very gratified by the fact that when George Floyd was killed uh, and Black Lives Matters came here more viscerally than it had done in 2016, I think, yeah. Um, And people wanted to do something about it and and began to take up agendas of anti-racism. I was cheered by that because it felt like there had been a deeper understanding of uh, what the political problem was um, with simply being, um, you know, not wanting to be racist. There was an activity involved in it. And a lot of my friends were calling me suspiciously. Some of them hadn't called for a while (laughs) to check check that we were cool. (laughs) I'll be cool. (laughs) <laughs> um, not not many my friends are pretty good, but I, I really thought that um, this might have been it but then it's a microcosm but um, I watch a lot of football so I watch match of the day often um, often all the time I watch every single episode of it I love it I love its format I love whizzing through and just watching the matches it's a nice comprehensive package it's really just hard not to get the results during the day because I've got a lot of football mates as well so I I watched them right at the beginning when uh, it reopened in June this season, to finish off last season, and it's a whistle and a 10 second meal, and the commentator saying, and so this is to say that we stand with Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter is in football. And off they go, every single match, you might get 10 matches, but every single match, they show the whistle and the kneel. And in my cynicism, I was, I was like, how long <laughs> is this going to last? because i could imagine somebody foaming at the mouth at home in a rage <laughs> that that 10 seconds of their football every single week and if you calculate 10 matches that's you know somebody boiling with the fact that uh, you know 2 minutes of their of their tv time is being is being wasted on this fucking thing
2: and 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 this is just a, just a timestamp when we're doing this interview we are doing this in the week where the news has blown up about Millwall fans. Okay. Uh, okay. Booing. Okay. booing yeah. That because... was going to be the end
0: of my story. Yeah. So, because, oh, because... Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, sorry, no, sorry. absolutely. Because, because then I began to watch and I thought, I wonder when they'll get tired of this. June went by, July went by, and I'm watching on Sky as well. And exactly the same things happened. It was sporting Black Lives Matter. August went by September, you know, October, mid October. I thought, uh, OK, they're not saying Black Lives Matter so much, but they are showing the kneel. Um, and then come November now, mid-November, it was like three weeks ago, match of the day, there was one match. All through, them, all through, they did the kneel and they said nothing. One of them said, and this is uh, football against racism, and I thought, OK, it's gone general now. What's happened to Black Lives Matters? And, and then one of the matches didn't have any kneel at all. I well, thought, here we go. And then sure enough, the last one I watched, but one in fact, this one last week, no mention of Black Lives Matters, and most of the commentators didn't even comment at all. They just made the kneel, they did, the, showed the kneel and off they went. And the Liverpool match, none at all, just straight into the match. So, so there's a kind of fatigue and it's happening on Sky as well. It's like, oh, the, the fatigue is set in already. And also probably the, the vociferous arguments of racists who are more organised than people who are not racist. <laughs> have probably i would say affected that decision because somebody had to in an ed- editorial meeting call it it's not just somebody deciding not to put it in you've got to call that in a meeting mm. with the other editors so what was that conversation like well i think um i think people have had enough of uh, you know the black lives matter thing. you're not going to say that how how did they i mean how awkward was that conversation but it, but it had to have taken place These things don't just change because the editor of that particular snippet wanted it to change. So I'd love to know what that conversation was, BBC and Sky, where you all decided that Black Lives Matter was some sort of, you know, persona non grata movement. that You couldn't mention it.
2: So last season.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then and then why have you chosen to now make it a general message about general racism when it wasn't about that at all? It's about bananas on the pitch. It's about a chance specifically directed towards black players.
2: Uh, yeah exactly like this conversation has been going on as long as there have been black players playing
0: yes football yeah. <laughs> and yeah. at least the turn of the century from uh, what i know um, walton i think his name was the first black player
2: yeah it's it's funny um i think back to those months you know obviously you know you know being being someone who's written about race and racism and and spearhead spearheaded projects like uh the good immigrant it, it, it you know the, those months you know it was constantly being contacted to um to to do things and you know you know at the, i remember at the time sort of saying you know this is this isn't the time for you know south asians <laughs> taking the spotlight you know this is very this is the black lives matter movement i'm not black i will happily here are 20 people you could talk to uh-huh. and and I also, but also really remember at the time in those months getting lots of very well-meaning texts from people um, recounting times that they'd been awful in my presence, and and my my reaction the entire time was, well, if you knew it at the time,
0: <laughs> yes, yes.
2: What has changed?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, oh God, I mean, yes, I'm old enough to to remember, you know, the '80s and, and rioting in sort of '80 80, '81, and I haven't. Uh, I haven't. I haven't thought that uh, it would go back to something this, this basic. I, I didn't think it'd go back to something this basic. You, you'd have thought that we would have moved on to some other argument, maybe about reparations or something. You know, but we're, we're not. We're still basically talking about um, please accept our humanity and and treat us equally. It's extraordinary. And why won't it change? Is probably because. Education is part of it because we keep repeating ourselves because we don't learn from anything that went before, which is why I think history is important, not because it's enjoyable to live in a past cosy place, but to see the foundations of how you live, how you live, you know. And people don't know their history. Black people really, really don't know their history because they haven't been taught it. It hasn't been presented to them. And white kids don't know the history of their country either. The working class don't know the history of being oppressed by the their leaders they don't know the history of being manipulated and used as shock troops by their leaders they don't know these things and so we, we all live in these sort of ignorant bubbles and unless that conversation happens we'll just continue in a, in a constant cycle
2: I, I sometimes wonder if the binary nature of social media which sort of requires that one argument that must have the the exact opposite presented to it and oh. you know where where people have have said look you know, we feel like this is a time to say something as basic as Black Lives Matter. That social media immediately presents the op- exactly opposite idea, which is All Lives Matter.
0: All Lives Matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that's the tony Morrison thing. I think was it you who mentioned in uh, your quote-unquote brilliantly um, oh, that uh, about wasting that basically you've got to spend the rest of your life if somebody says you have no culture proving that you have a culture you're going to spend yeah. 20 years on that and and i have this is probably one of the last podcasts that i'll do for a very very long time on any subject other than you know something frivolous like puns that i like <laughs> shakespeare because uh I, I i got a bit of fatigue talking about these things because i realized that a lot of my time has been spent setting up zooms and uh, and speaking on conferences and talking to drama students and talking to you know institutions and I, and i don't i don't think that it's not worth talking i just think i could probably spend my time better just sort of expressing my point you know expressing my humanity which is all i ever want is 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 that it's just know that my humanity is as valid my ideas and my ability to express them as valid as anybody else's so i should just keep doing that rather than trying to prove why that's the case
2: yeah it's it's a brilliant quote um you know the function of racism is to keep us from doing the work that we're meant to be doing and 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 thank you so much for coming on this this podcast it really means the world i do think a lot about uh, when Steve McQueen was nominated for the Oscar for oh. 12 Years a Slave, they did this Hollywood Reporter round table and they asked Steve McQueen a question about diversity and racism in the industry. And he said, why are you asking me this? Ask all of them, <laughs> ask everyone else. And My friend Moose Kwanga, the, the journalist and writer, uh, he once said to me, why must the oppressed always be called upon to comment on our oppression? Why not? Uh, why not? Why not ask the oppressors to hold themselves accountable for change? Yes. And I think about that quote daily.
0: Yeah, no, that's I, I'm I'm really heading that way. I mean, here's here's an extreme. There's always, I'm always bouncing back and forth, even in my own ideas. I never trust my own ideas somehow. So I'm talking to a writer last week on a on a theatre Zoom, and um, or talking to but hearing them speak, and they said this thing about not. Sp- addressing or in some ways not wanting to educate in their work, theatre work, that um, in the sense, to, if I really paraphrase, put it bluntly, and also probably misquote, uh, we don't need to teach white people anything, they all know already about their racism, I'm not interested in talking to them, I'm going to just do stuff for my people. Having come from somewhere where they were in the majority, Um, somewhere in in Africa where they were um, the majority coming to England and explaining or educating white people seemed anathema and a waste of time and it's such a powerful argument that why should we be concerned with the white gaze why should we imitate their way of storytelling and it really foxed me because I thought because for me this is the way I tell stories. I have been brought up in this culture. I'm I, I, from, the, from the day I was born in Park Royal, Northwest London to, to, to now pretty much apart from about sort of seven, eight year gap, I've always lived in England. Uh, my television programs that are in my head, my memories are England, are London specifically, but England and the food I ate growing up, I know the English culture inside out I understand English people better than they understand me because I've observed them my whole life. And to then say that I'm a communicator, which is what I think I am as an actor and as a writer now, but there are certain people I don't want to communicate with in the country that I grew up in, especially as those people are actually very integral into why I live the way I live and why my people have to negotiate the world that we live in as we do. To ignore them would seem anti-art. It's like, what is the if it's not the purpose is to show, to connect, to empathise, to enlighten, to surprise people, then what is it for? I don't understand why you wouldn't confront those who, in life, confront you all the time, or engage with those who are around you. Um, So I think it's an argument that I, I still will wrestle with, but I. I think the white gaze is what the white gaze is. And it's in us all. And, um, you know, it's not about imitation. It's about using the tools Mm. that are around you. So the way you express yourself, the words you use and how you choose to use them in a culture that understands them in a particular way, matters. Um, It matters that you understand it. You can pick it apart, but you should understand it. And also you should communicate with it. It's part of the audience.
2: Given how Heavy the world sometimes feels. How do you ensure that you're bringing your kid up with a sense of joy and boundlessness in their life?
0: Uh, I mostly do it through telly. I mean, <laughs> we watch a lot of comedy. Um, we laugh a lot. Um, I'm a big punster, and so is he, increasingly. And I do think laughter is—it um, really is the healer, you know. Uh, not even time. I do, and it's in my play actually. I have, I have uh, Sancho say that. He had a sort of militant joy you know that despite everything he wrote pop songs you know despite where he was living so he, he's heroic for me in that way That I, I think you have to find that joy i think that's your re- that greatest revenge for a world that that does oppress you um you know from time to time you walk around the corner you feel that oppression and the best way is to be as content and happy and find those things um that content that make you feel that way and my son has it he he has a love of music which I hope i have given him music is essential for me but it but it is understanding the way the world is but living living your life as fully as possible is the greatest uh sort of triumph I think.
2: and what what's the best and the most useless advice you've ever received as a parent
0: um I've ever received uh as a from from my parents
2: or no what? just just in general from okay people who, who people who, who give you advice
0: who uh, have given the
2: advice. worst bit of advice let me think of the worst bit of advice I
0: can't think of the worst bit of advice I think I've, I always find a little golden nugget in any old bit of rubbish but um <laughs> I think I I like um well actually time heals everything is probably a, a phrase rather than a bit of advice that I think is fraught with all sorts of flaws um because time doesn't mean anything really it's what it's what happens in that period that's interesting so I've always hated that phrase. I think it's irritated me. Time heals everything. Like, what? I'm just going to sit here and everything's going to be healed. <laughs> yeah. um, but the best bit of advice is my my dad, which I did a quote-unquote, but it still is the best bit of advice I've ever had. Be- because it's easy for me to procrastinate. I'm really good at it. I'm really good at sitting down and watching endless episodes of Match of the Day and then this of the women's football show just because it's football or playing my PS4. I mean, I'm a I'm a man in his fifties, you know, but I love that. I love playing games and sort of sitting there procrastinating. So there, I need to be driven. I need to be I sort of driven. I need a, I need um, I need a goad, um, and I think uh, I think my walk, walk with your art, son, which is what my dad said to me when I was uh, in a bit of a trauma a few years ago. Walk with your art every time i get to a place i think i'm not doing anything let me just go write something let me go read that thing which is a research thing that i got and i always find that two three hours have gone by and i've been fruitful
2: Hmm. Patterson joseph thank you very much you can (laughs) (laughs) cheers you can (laughs) sorry i've been holding on to that (laughs) I'm going to have to keep the story in <laughs> now. Term of endearment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. All right. Speak to you soon, Nikesh. Bye.
2: Thank you so much to Patterson for taking the time to be on this podcast and to Acast for supporting me and to my publisher, Bluebird and to you, sorry for the swearing by the book. Only a few more episodes left in season one. Then we're going to take a little bit of time off and then we'll be back with season two, but we've still got three episodes of season one to go next week. will be Jacob. Okay, see you next week. Goodbye, my loves. Bye bye. Brown baby, I am brown baby. Yes, I am. I am. Silly brown baby.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen